Amen, amen. You may be seated this morning, and as we do on Sunday morning, we're going to study God's Word, and we've been in John's Gospel. We're going to continue to study John's Gospel. We've covered the first eight chapters, and so if you'll turn to chapter 9, we'll start reading at verse 1 of John's Gospel. If you need a Bible, follow along with us. Just raise your hand, and Pastor John will slip you a Bible, and we want you to study God's Word with us, read it with us. And um, we're going to be covering verses 1 through 12. Again, John chapter 9. And in this chapter, it's a chapter that perhaps a lot of you have read, you're familiar with this chapter, because it records an amazing miracle that we're going to see that actually the whole chapter is going to be devoted to and will tell us about. And it, it involves a man who's not named in this chapter, as Jesus is in Jerusalem, of course, as we have seen, he's about six months from going to the cross. And that man that's not named was born blind, and it's a record of how Jesus heals this man. And we know that as we look at the gospel narratives, that Jesus, he would heal the blind so that their sight would be restored. But in this case this is one individual is the only one that we can say for sure was one that that was born blind and ended up being healed now you recall if you've been with us in our study we finished chapter 8 last week and in chapter 8 jesus declared himself to be the light of the world and he would tell the religious leaders of israel as the religious leaders were really mounting up their their opposition against jesus their hatred was growing uh against jesus and Jesus would tell them that I am from above. And if you do not believe that I am he, that you will die in your sins. And the religious leaders, as as you read that term, the Jews, that's what it's talking about, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were rejecting him and they said that, well, you have a demon. And who do you think that you are? saying and implying that you're greater than uh, our father Abraham. And, And the chapter ended by Jesus once again making that statement of deity. Before Abraham was, I am. Ego ami in the Greek. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying in that statement, that Jesus was saying that I am God. So the religious leaders picked up rocks to throw at him. They considered that statement to be so blasphemous that he's deserving of death right here, right now. So they're wanting to stone him. And we saw as we left off as in chapter 8, let's read it in verse 59. They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. And now we'll pick up chapter 9, verse 1. But before we do, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this time in the study of your word. And Lord, my prayer is that all of our hearts, whether we're in here or out in the coffee shop, that, Lord, our hearts would be open and ready and soft and teachable as, Lord, we look at this familiar story of the man who was born blind that is healed by Jesus. And in this story, we know that um, there is application to be made for our lives today. So I pray that we would be teachable that, Lord, that we would receive from you this morning, that you would touch our hearts, and, Lord, that you would um, instruct us and minister to us in a very wonderful way. So we give you this time in the study of your word, in Jesus' name. 
So in chapter 9, verse 1, we read, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. So Jesus would hide himself from those religious leaders, and as he does that, there's an individual that he passes by. This individual that the text tells us that he is blind, and he was blind from birth. And this individual would catch Jesus' attention, and his disciples in verse 2 asked Jesus, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the disciples somehow knew that this man was blind from birth, and so they're asking Jesus, why is this? Why is he blind from birth? And is it because he sinned, or is it because his parents sinned? Now, the question begs, why would they ask Jesus that specific question? Here is a man that is born blind. They know that. They're asking Jesus, is it because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And the reason that they're asking that question is because the rabbis of the day taught that a person could sin inside the womb. And they got that from Genesis chapter 25. In Genesis chapter 25, of course, there is Isaac married to Rebekah, and she becomes pregnant. And as uh, the you know, pregnancy is, is uh, progressing, all of a sudden there's a lot of rumbling in the, in going on in her womb. So she inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said, Rebecca, you have twins. And actually, you have two nations that are warring against each other. And of course, we know the story from Genesis 25 that Esau would be born first, who was the father uh, of the Edomites. And then Jacob, holding on to his heel, would come out. And he is the one that would have the 12 sons who were the patriarchs to the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's what's going on, Rebecca. So the rabbis, what they did is they took that concept and said that you can get, you know, sinful and rowdy inside the womb. And and in so doing this, what can happen is it can cause the judgment of God to come upon you. So you can be born with some kind of physical infirmity. That's the, the way that they would explain those kinds of things that would happen. Hey, that individual must have sinned somehow inside uh, their mother's womb. But also, the disciples are asking very specifically, was it their father or grandfather that sinned um, because um, he's born blind? Is that the reason? And the rabbis also taught from Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, and you might be familiar with it, the Ten Commandments that as the Lord said, you shall not bow down or worship any graven image, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So what the teachers of the day taught was this, that if you are experiencing some kind of, like this man, physical infirmity or some kind of difficulties, it could be because your parents sinned or your grandparents sin, or your great-grandparents, or your great-great-grandparents sin. It could be up to four generations back, and it will have repercussions if they did that somehow. They sin in a way that it gets passed on to you. Because God is a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them who hate me. Now, that same idea is taught today in some circles of Christianity by some counselor, that if you're struggling with some sort of difficulty or some kind of sin, 
maybe it's with, um, you know, alcoholism, drug use. Uh, if you're struggling with pornography, if you're struggling in some area of your life, it's because of generational curse. Uh, that curse has been passed down because your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather had that same kind of struggle, and those things get taught very much in the church today. I run into people all the time that say, well, it's a generational curse. My father, my grandfather, they dealt with this, and, and so now I'm dealing with it. Now, is that what God is saying in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5? Because there are those teachers that will turn to that verse and say, see, it's a generational curse. That's what God is talking about in the book of Exodus. I will say this that what your parents do does affect you. We know that for sure. Certainly it does. And that's why the scriptures stress that you and I, that we are to be godly examples to our children, that we're to raise our children in the ways of the Lord. And we learn good things from our parents, but also we can learn very bad things from our parents as well. But I want to just set you know, a good biblical foundation for you in this area because there are those who say, well, the reason that I struggle with my anger is because it's a generational curse. Listen, the prophet Ezekiel dismissed that kind of thinking. And the prophet Ezekiel in his book, as the Lord comes along and he says that you're responsible for your sin. You see, they were going into captivity by Babylon, and it was the people, the people of Judah, in their rebellion, uh, they were saying, well, we're going into captivity because it's our father's fault. They were grinding their teeth. They were saying that the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So God said that that proverb will no longer be spoken. You are responsible for your own sin. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, what it is not saying to us is that God is going to, to get your kids if you get out of line. That is not the heart of the Father. The, the Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 text is not telling us that automatically there's a curse that passes down from generation to generation because, you know, uh, of this sin that happened, and you're going to be bound in in that sin, you're going to have that curse that's going to come upon you. That's not the, the heart of the text. That's not the heart of, of our Father who we love and worship and walk with. So what God is saying in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 is this, that those who hate me, those who rebel against me, those who persist in iniquity, I'm going to keep visiting them generation after generation after generation. In other words, I am not going to say, oh, well, I'm not going to convict anymore. I'm tired of convicting. I'm tired of, and I'm not going to work with sinners anymore. I'm going to change the rules. Uh, you go and do whatever it is that you want. Go ahead and live however you want and worship whoever you want. It doesn't matter. That's not what the heart of our Lord is either. What God is saying is that I'm going to keep dealing and convicting and judging generation after generation after generation because my law and my ways, my heart does not change. Regardless of what is being accepted in society, it doesn't matter what the latest trend is. It doesn't matter what everybody's opinion is. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 is a way of saying 
God says, I'm going to keep dealing with sin and rebellion and false worship in them that rebel against me to those who hate me. So the person who says, well, I steal because it's generational curse, or I, I deal with anger because it's a generational curse. Yes, parents, they do have an effect on you and how you are raised. But read Ezekiel chapter 18 where God makes it very clear that all souls are mine. All souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the, the soul of the Son. The soul that sins shall die. So don't grind your teeth against mom and dad. Every soul was created by me and belongs to me and is going to be responsible before me as an individual. All souls are mine. But I wanted to say this. For you who have had a terrible upbringing and where there was so much sin and darkness and depravity perhaps in your family and in your past, I want to give you good news that you can be free from all that. And the Lord comes along and he says to you and to me that I can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And he's the one that brings healing to our hearts as he changes our hearts, as we surrender our lives to him. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? That we don't have to be in bondage to those things. You see, Jesus became a curse for us, as the Bible says, the one who knew no sin, so we can come into the righteousness of Jesus Christ and we can be changed as we surrender our hearts to him, coming into salvation, free from the penalty of sin, but also as the Holy Spirit dwells in us, that we are free from the power of sin. And we've been discussing that and talking about that over the last couple of weeks. Jesus said in the previous chapter that you shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Set you free. You and I as Christians are free from those things as we surrender our lives completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have to live under the curse of sin and the power of sin in our lives. And that's the good news. So here is some of the rabbis of Jesus' day, such as some say today that, you know, as, G as the disciples are asking Jesus, so who sinned? So that this man has congenital blindness. Did he sin in the womb or was it mom and dad messed up that he was born blind? There are people today, and I think all of us have asked this question, and I get asked this all the time, why is there suffering? Why is there, for example, birth defects? Why is there tragedy? Why is there pain? Why is there difficulty? Why is there hurt and sickness in, in this life? And sometimes people will begin to ask, was it because, because of me? Was it that somebody else sinned? Now, it is true that all sadness and sorrow and, and sickness and evil and tragedy is because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fa fallen world because Adam and Eve sinned. Clear back in Genesis chapter 3, as the, after the fall of Adam and Eve, as the Lord came along and said, now there's going to be sin and death as a result of your sin, Adam. And we know that because we live in a fallen world, that those things happen in this world and in our lives. So suffering and sadness is the result of a fallen world that we live in. But here in John chapter 9, Jesus is setting the record straight. 
you cannot say that when you see, for example, someone who is born with a physical defect or infirmity that was because of some sin in that individual or their family. So Jesus answers these guys, his disciples, very directly as we read in verse 3 that he says, "...neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him." I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The, the night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is important. Why are people born with sickness or blindness? Why is there pain? Why is there tragedy that comes to some? As I get asked that quite often as a pastor, my answer is this, that I don't know that I don't know. Why specifically you're going through this situation, this difficulty, this pain? It was the great question of Job, wasn't it, in his book? We're going to study that in just a couple weeks as we finish Esther, and we'll go into the book of Job. Here is a man, Job, who was blameless and upright before God. And we know that he would go through tremendous loss. He lost all his possessions. He lost his children. He became where his health was, was stricken, and, and he was one that experienced a lot of pain and boils and great sickness. And Job is there in sackcloth, sitting in the, the, the garbage heap. And his friends come along and begin to converse and counsel him. And, and they're telling him, Job, it's because you need to confess some sin. You, you need to, to come out and, and say what it is that you did wrong. But at the end of the book, what we will see is God answers Job. And he says, Job, where were you when I laid out the heavens? And he talks about his sovereignty. But he never directly answered Job why he allowed this to happen to Job. And it amazes me that there seems to be those who always seem to have an answer for everything. And as a pastor, as I get asked these kinds of questions, why? Why did, you know, this happen to my family? Why did I go through this loss? Why, you know, was this person born, for example, with a physical defect? I don't know. I don't know. But I've said this many times because I've heard this from my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, who said this, that's been a great help to me, and I pray that it's great comfort and help to you, that when we are confronted with those things that we do not understand, and there are things that happen in our lives that we do not understand, then what you are to do is fall back on that which you can understand and do understand. And we can understand what God's word declares to us, and that is he loves us, and he promised he'll never leave us or forsake us, and that he is working in our lives, that through the difficulties and the tragedy, that he can be glorified, and we can be strengthened, and know that his promises are true for us. So these disciples asked Jesus, was it sin in this man that was born blind? Jesus said no. And he doesn't say why, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. While it's still day, I must work the works of my Father. And for anyone that is going through perhaps sadness or sickness or difficulty or tragedy of some sort, what can happen, and we can all do this, is we become so introspective and, and say, well, maybe I did something wrong. Or maybe I don't have any faith. 
That's what the faith teacher says, that healing hasn't taken place because we don't have enough faith or I don't have enough faith. Or maybe there's some sin that's in my life or uh, maybe I have the spirit of infirmity or maybe it's God punishing me. But rather what we are to do is you go to your loving Father and say, Lord, I trust in you and what your word declares to me. And I know this, I know this, and I can fall back on this and rest in this, that you do love me. And I know that, Jesus, you took the punishment that was meant for me when you died on Calvary's cross. And I know that I can trust in you with my life and in this situation. And, and I know that you're working in my situation for good somehow in eternity's perspective. And Lord, I know that you're the God of comfort. And I also know this, that you are desiring and able to work something very special, very unique, and very powerful in what it is that I'm facing because you are the light of the world. And so in these verses, I think that we can see somewhat of the heart of the Lord towards the issue of difficulty of suffering. And it isn't this endless introspective analysis, but rather a realization, listen, that the Lord, that there is opportunity for you to work according to your will an opportunity for your glory to be revealed in some way in my life in this situation. But in this story recorded in John chapter 9, not only does it give us insight, some insight to suffering, but also it gives us insight to our salvation, doesn't it? Because this blind man in us, it speaks spiritually of who? It speaks of you and me. You see, we were blind spiritually before the Lord touched us, before we came and opened our hearts to Him. We were, as Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 declares, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts. That was us before we were saved. We were blind to the things of God. We walked in darkness is what the Scripture declares. Now, you might recall in, in John chapter 3 that it was Nicodemus that was told by the Lord that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And this man here in John chapter 9, born with, with blindness, no hope of ever seeing apart from Jesus. And spiritually, you and I are this blind man. We were born sinners, as the scripture says, all of us. And Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to say that we are spiritually dead. We're in blindness. No hope apart from Jesus Christ of coming into true fellowship and knowing the Father. But as Jesus saw this man and stopped, Jesus did the same thing with you and with me. That he stopped as he saw us. He saw us in our blindness and our deadness. And he said, I'm going to do a work in that man. I'm going to do a work in that woman. And I'm going to bring glory to my father. And I'm going to open up their eyes spiritually. In verse 6, when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
Now, there's all kinds of guesses and speculations and meanings why Jesus spat on the ground and, you know, put the mud, the clay, in the man's eye. It is interesting that we're going to read in verse 14. We won't get to it today. But in verse 14, it tells us that Jesus did this miracle on the Sabbath. And you might recall that it was the religious leaders that were so upset at Jesus because he was healing on a Sabbath day. You remember the, the man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. And because Jesus did that healing on a Sabbath day, the religious leaders were determined to put Jesus to death. Hey, he's violating the Sabbath day. They were so into keeping the Sabbath day perfectly. And here Jesus, again, is doing this healing on the Sabbath day that we're going to learn. And as I mentioned to you, that the Pharisees were that sect of religious leaders that Pharisee means dedicated one, separated one. They were dedicated to keeping the most minute details of the law, which the scribes had interpreted. The scribes came along and they took the Ten Commandments and they made 613 commandments out of the Ten Commandments. They also came along and they would interpret what it means to keep the Sabbath law perfectly. And one of the things that they said was that you could not spit on the ground on the Sabbath day. That's how ridiculous they had gotten with it. And the reason that you can't spit on the ground on the Sabbath day, because the saliva mixes with the ground and, you know, it could be considered making mortar and that could be work. And so you can't do that. Interesting, Jesus spits on the ground to make mud here on the Sabbath to bring healing. I think it is important to note that Jesus didn't use the exact same method of healing every time. When he healed those who were blind, as you look at the gospel narratives, sometimes he would just touch them and they were healed. There's one case where he touched the man twice and then he could see clearly. There's one time that he actually spit in the guy's eye and, and he was healed. But there's no set pattern. Jesus would then do that. And he gave a command to this man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And Jesus, of course, was the one who was sent, the light of the world, so that we could be washed by the blood of Jesus. And so now our Lord and Savior, we can see, we no longer walk in darkness as the Lord has touched us and saved us. But think about this situation here as we get back to our text. This man wasn't looking for Jesus. He, he couldn't see him. He wasn't crying out to him. We know that he was begging. Verse 8 is going to tell us that. And Jesus walks up, puts mud in his eyes, and tells him, go wash. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, here is this man we know that Jesus was at the temple. So this man is right there at the temple proper. You know, they're begging as all the people would come up to the temple the Pool of Siloam was about a quarter of a mile away. And it was at the very, you know, end of Jerusalem, the very low point of Jerusalem, as the Kidron Valley would run from north to south. And they just found the Pool of Siloam just recently in, in their excavations. And they have found Hezekiah, Hezekiah's tunnel that is about 1,777 feet long that goes from a spring, Gihon Spring, in the Kidron Valley to the Pool of Siloam, and the reason that Hezekiah made that tunnel was to bring all the water supply into the city to keep it safe from attack, and under his reign, he would be uh, attacked by the Assyrian army that surrounded the city. But be that as it may, we know that, that they found the Pool of Siloam, so it's about a quarter of a mile from the temple. 
Go wash in the pool of Siloam was the command. Jesus at the temple. This man has to walk about a quarter of a mile blind as Jesus put mud in his eyes. And I wonder what that man initially thought. As he heard the command of the Lord, go and wash. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He just knows that he was told, go wash in the pool. And the thing is, this man whose name is not given to us all throughout the chapter, he could have said, what do you mean go and wash? I can't see. I need to stay here and, and continue begging so I can get some money. You put mud in my eyes, and I'm uncomfortable, and you expect me to walk all that way downhill to find that pool a quarter of a mile away? But he didn't have the excuses. Rather, he was obedient. And he went down, and he washed, and he came up seeing. Isn't it wonderful that in our blind state, that God loved you and me enough to stop and to touch us and to touch our hearts as we heard the command to repent and turn to me and be washed with the blood of Jesus. And as we did, we came away seeing. In other words, we came to salvation. So in John chapter 9, listen, we have here some explanation concerning suffering. Secondly, we have implication and an illustration of salvation but let's bring it home a little bit closer for us this morning who are believers. That I think that it's an encouragement for sanctification. Because throughout the scriptures, we see that Jesus gave commands that seem to be so difficult, even impossible to do. And we've discussed this in our previous studies. Remember Mark chapter 3, the story of the man in a synagogue with a withered hand, and Jesus told him to stand up and stretch forth that hand. And that man could have said, what do you mean stretch forth my hand? I can't do that. My, my hand is withered. It doesn't work. It's paralyzed. I can't stretch it forth. But he stretched it forth, and as he did, there was healing that took place. In Matthew chapter 17, for example, I was reading this the other day, Peter, as he is told that, Peter, I want you to put a hook on the end of a line, fishing line, throw it into the Sea of Galilee. And those guys didn't fish that way. That was unheard of. They fished with nets at night. But I want you to put a hook on the end of a line, and you're going to catch a fish, and you're going to open up his mouth, and you're going to pull out some money, a coin, and we're going to pay our temple tax. Now, if I were to tell you to do that, to go over here to, you know, to one of the lakes in the park, throw in a line, you're going to catch a fish, open it up, and there's going to be a $100 bill in it. You would think I was crazy. Would you have the faith to do it? And yet Peter did that as he was obedient, hearing the command of the Lord. These individuals that heard the Lord's command, Mark chapter 3, here in John chapter 9, Peter, other instances, they could have come up with all kinds of excuses, but when they heard the command of the Lord, they would be obedient to it. They were blessed because they trusted in what God had to say to them, and healing took place, or a miracle took place, and a healing takes place here because he took heed to what God said to him. And he trusted in what God said. And you see, yes, as the Lord comes by and he saves us, we have eternal life. But know this, Christian, that God wants us to be obedient to him now as we hear his commands so we can experience that life abundantly that he has promised for us so we can continue to walk in the light, not the darkness. 
There are things that the Lord commands us to do today that we think this is hard, this is impossible, Lord. What do you mean, forgive that person who has hurt me? What do you mean that I need to love my husband and respect him? Or a husband might say, to love my wife as Christ loves the church. As I'm told to stay away from carnality and things that stumble you. And what happens oftentimes is we end up with the excuses and we say no. And the result of that is we end up just looking for that better life, for God to work. We end up to where we wonder why isn't things happening. And we end up kind of like this man was, begging for the answers, for something to happen when we've been told to go and wash. You wash yourself in the water of the word. And as we do that, as we say, okay, Lord, I'm going to learn your truths and your precepts, and, and I'm going to learn your commands. And as I hear your command, uh, I s understand. I, I know the truth that is given to me. I hear your voice, Lord. Help me to be obedient to it. Even if I don't understand how it's all going to work out, even as I know that in my own strength I cannot do this, I know, Lord, that you're going to help me. And a truth that we've discussed many times before is as the Lord gives us a commandment, he's going to give you the ability to be able to perform and do what he's called you to do. He's going to work in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if any of us, if we ignore God's commands, we are going to end up being in the dark about a lot of things. When God wants us to walk in the light, to experience his faithfulness and goodness, to experience his provision, and to see him working in a wonderful, glorious way. And we can experience unnecessary difficulty and discouragement and, and defeat in some area of our life because we are not heeding the word of God or desiring to be obedient to the word of the Lord. And we end up missing out, missing out on God's blessing and provision and even miracles that he wants to do. And we end up being defeated and frustrated and wondering and wrestling. This man was healed because he heard the voice of the Lord, go and wash. And he didn't make excuses. He didn't just sit down and continue begging. He went and washed and he came up seeing a miracle happen. And as we heed the word, as we hear the word, walking in the light, no more darkness. No more darkness. And we experience and see the light. But there's one more point that I'd like to make, and this is important as well, before we close this morning. Jesus and the disciples saw this man. He's begging, he's blind, in need. The disciples asked a question, who sinned, him or, or his parents? They're asking this theological question, and, and maybe perhaps they're expecting some deep theological discussion that they're going to have with Jesus. Jesus says that, you know, it isn't because his parents are, or he sinned in the womb, but he says, I'm going to touch this man. I'm going to help him so that the glory of God may be revealed. Sometimes Christians 
that they can spend so much time discussing endlessly theology. Now, hear my point on this. I want to get into a deep theological thought and discussion and debate about certain things. And I know that theology and doctrine is very important. Those of you who've been around here long enough, you know that it's a priority in our life, that we're to be grounded in the truth, that we're to know the precepts, that we're going to have good, sound doctrine. Of course we are. That's why we go through the scriptures the way that we do here at Calvary Chapter, uh, Chapel, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Paul then would write a second letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and told him, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So knowing theology is a good thing. It's imperative. It's a priority. But that is not all our Christianity is about. And the reason that I say that is because I'll have people say that, you know, I want to talk and discuss theology with you, Pastor, and they'll want to do it endlessly, and they'll spend hours after hours after hours blogging and reading other blogs and in discussions of theology, and it all has its place. But here's the thing. Are you touching people's lives? Are you touching people's lives? Are you showing compassion towards them? You care about them, that you're helping them practically in ways that you can. Here in John chapter 9, they ask this question. He says, no, guys, your theology is wrong, but excuse me because I'm going to go and touch this man's life. I always want to teach you something. My desire is that you are grounded in God's word and that you have good, solid doctrine and theology, of course. But I also pray that we just don't take in and take in and take in Bible study after Bible study, week after week, and we don't give out. And we're not loving others. And we're not showing compassion towards others. Jesus passing through the temple because the religious leaders wanted to stone him. And he leaves them and he sees a man who is hurting in the dark in a hopeless situation. And Jesus touches him and gives him a word. And every single one of us are going to leave this house of God this week. And a stone's throw away from you is a person who is blind. Talking spiritually. And you and I have opportunity to stop and allow our lives and our day to be interrupted and give them truth and hope and, yes, theology, but to touch them compassionately, to be able to help practically. Because all of us know and have a lot of blind people that are around us, and we have opportunity to stop and to minister to them, and to give them light, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you the truth on this, that people are very seldom impressed with all of our knowledge in theology. They are not going to really be impressed with you until you show them that you care, and that you have a concern for them, and you care enough to say, I want to give you truth and to give them the light of the world, Jesus, and the gospel and the good news because they can sense that in your heart and to compassionately reach out to them. 
Is that a part of your life? In simple ways, reaching out and touching people's lives, helping, touching, as you give the word, as you give the gospel, as you help people out and know that they're in the darkness. So this man healed when he went to the pool and washed in verse 8. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? And some said, This is he. Others said, Is like him. He said, I am he. Isn't this the guy who's been sitting here? He must have been there for a long time, blind and begging. Yeah, it's him. Others were saying, we think it's him. He's saying, it is me. When Jesus truly touches your heart, you become a new creation in Christ. Your eyes are open. There's a change of life. It's not about religion. It's about relationship with the true and living God that transforms us and changes us and makes us a new creation in Christ. And when Jesus is living in our hearts, people will say, man, isn't this the one? You were in the dark about a lot of things and living in darkness. But now there's light. And there's light that's coming from you. And somehow you're seeing things. When Jesus really touches you and you receive his forgiveness and love, there will be a change and people that are close to you, linked to you in your life, will realize that you have changed because you are born again by the Spirit of God. There's a change in your heart and attitude, your behavior, your conduct, your speech. And they can see that the change is real. Why? Because they're seeing the reality of Jesus in your life. In verse 10, therefore they said to him, how were your eyes open? And he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. When we are touched by Jesus, no longer in the blindness, no, no longer in the dark, People will say to you and to me, listen, as they see the reality, as they sense your compassion, as they know that your heart has changed, they will say, how is it that you see? How is it that you've changed? And that gives us opportunity to say that Jesus touched me. He died for me. He forgave me. He has cleansed me. I was blind, but now I see. And then we can tell them, that the Lord desires to do that most wonderful work in their life as well because he's the light of the world that whoever believes in him shall come to salvation and forgiveness of sin. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, shall not perish but have everlasting life. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful story told to us. Lord, we ask that this morning that as we just consider this story as we make application. It's more than a healing that took place. It's wonderful to read about that, but Lord, we see how you desire to heal us spiritually. And so, Lord, initially, right now, and I pray that there be no moving around right now. We're almost done. But, and out there in a coffee shop, that everyone would just be still because the Lord's not through that I pray that if there's anyone here that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that the gospel, the truth of God's word says that you're in the darkness, 
that you're blind spiritually. And it is Jesus, the light of the world, that came to this world to bring light to you and to open up your eyes. The Bible says because we are all born with sin, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where there's sin and sadness and sickness, and because of Adam's sin, it's been passed on to us. Sin and death has come into the world, to all of us, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. But Jesus, the righteous one, came and died for you because of his love for you. He came to give us true hope, and the only hope that there is in receiving salvation having our eyes open up, coming alive spiritually, but you must be born again. And that means that you recognize that you are a sinner. To repent, that word simply means to turn direction. Quit going in the direction you're going right now because the direction you're going apart from Jesus Christ will lead to eternal death. That's the truth of God's word. Your hope is not in this world. Your hope is not in you trying to be good. You cannot be good enough. None of us are. Your hope is in Jesus. And it isn't about becoming religious. It's about having a relationship with him. And the Holy Spirit coming and living inside your heart and changing your heart and making you a new creation in Christ. But it's come, first of all, by believing. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and he was put into a grave and he rose again after three days. And maybe perhaps as today is the day of salvation that the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart. Will you let him in? If that means anything to anyone here this morning, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, we want to give you opportunity to do so this morning. For you to pray right where you're sitting, Jesus I confess that I am a sinner and I come to you and I turn to you and ask you to be my personal Lord and Savior. I confess in my heart and with my mouth that you died for my sins. Forgive me. And that you're alive. You rose from the grave. And I believe in you. And please sit on the throne of my heart right now. And Lord, help me to, to live for you all the days of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And I want to pray for anybody that prayed that prayer this morning. And I can't see you out in a coffee shop, but you can raise your hand. we got people there to minister to you, or you can come talk to me after the service. But here in the sanctuary, if anybody prayed that prayer, will you just put your hand up and put it back down? We want people to come and give you know, your life to Jesus. And raising your hand doesn't save you, but it's saying that I've made a commitment to Jesus. Anybody at all in this service at this time? Okay. So, Father, as we, we as your children, have received sight, that, Lord, that we would just hear your word, and trust your word is true for us today. And Lord, we know that many of the commands that you give to us, we can't do on our own. And that's why we need to be surrendered to you and walk in the spirit. Help us not to make excuses, but 
Lord, to come to you and surrender so that we can experience your glory and your light in a very deep and meaningful way. And Lord, I do pray for those this morning that are perhaps going through tragedy or difficulty or loss, that when we're confronted with the things that we don't understand, that we can turn to and trust in the things that we do understand. And that is that you love us, your word given to us, And Lord, I pray that we would understand that even in the tragedy of our lives and difficulties, that just as this man, that Jesus said that my glory may be evident and I can do the works of the Father that you desire to work in our situation. So strengthen us. Bring comfort to those who need your comfort this morning and direction. And Lord, rest. So Father, we thank you for this morning. Pray you bless everyone here as we go our way.